I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankowski. We've got a new podcast from the Connecticut Mirror. This season, we're going straight to the community to find out whose stories are going untold. Untold, coming soon from the Connecticut Mirror. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. If you haven't yet supported the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. Nonpartisan, nonprofit journalism like this is really vitally important to our democracy. And what I'd ask you to do is click that big red donate button in the upper right hand corner of the ctmirror.org page, the brand new, newly designed ctmirror.org page, and make a contribution in whatever amount you feel comfortable with. It really does help support this high quality journalism. Uh, if you do want to see the other events in this series, you can go to ctmirror.org slash events and you can find out what I talked about with Mark Pazniokas, our political reporter, and Keith Faniff, our budget reporter. Those are both archived there so you can take a look. But tonight we're going to be looking ahead at the big policy issues and politics of this year with my panel of guests, Hearst, Connecticut's Dan Haar, CT News junkie Susan Bigelow, and Southern Connecticut State University professor Jonathan Wharton. Thank you all so much for being here. It's good to see you all. Great to be here. Great to see you. Great to be back. It's it's sort of like a, a, a version of a program that I used to host that I don't know that I'm even allowed to talk about here, but I'm, I'm really excited to see you all. And it'll be very much like, hey, I have one of those mugs. Um, <laughs> when, when we talked when we talked with Keith Benef <laughs> about the budget, you know, we, we did talk an awful lot about some of the things that are coming up in this state legislative session. We'll get to some of those. When we talked to Mark we talked about all the politics of this year, and we'll probably start there. But there's also some new news that we'll get to over the course of this hour. Well, let's get started. Maybe I'll just go around the horn, first of all, and, and ask each of you how you're thinking about this year. I, I asked both Keith and Mark for their unified theories of uh, policy and politics in 2022. Susan, let me, let me start with you. What, what are the really big things you're looking at as we head into a new legislative session and as we head through a big political year? Well, I think that everything is going to be colored by two things, uh, the pandemic and it's sort of either petering out, turning endemic, or uh, maybe getting worse again. Who knows? Who knows where it's going to go? But uh, the pandemic is going to be the one thing that's going to dominate us for the, uh, dominate the conversation for the first half of the year. And the second half of the year will be dominated by uh, all the nasty little election issues that have been kind of simmering in the background. I think I really do think we're going to be talking a lot about crime. Um, I see that as something that we're we're going to be a little more obsessed with as we head into into the elections. Um, and it's we'll, we'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to talk about about that later. But I'm pretty sure that's going to be one of our number one things that we talk about. And we're going to have to figure out what's true and what's false about crime. So that's going to be, I think, what we're going to start with. What's true and what's false about crime, that's something we'll definitely get to. Jonathan Warden, how about you? How are you thinking about this year? Well, of course, I, I share the same uh, concerns that Susan brings up, especially the elections. I know everybody's going to be fixated, of course, on the gubernatorial and even maybe in statewide elections, but I'm very interested in the General Assembly races, especially for Senate. Um, you know, there, there are all these possibilities for some of these competitive races and even open seats. Uh, I also want to throw into the mix as well the chef case, because I don't want to ignore what took place last week and seeing how the General Assembly will <laughs> win 
they'll vote and make a, a final decision on that that new uh, you know formula that they've done to allow students to um, at least in urban areas uh, to to go to suburban schools. So this is going to be kind of interesting with the open choice initiative and what the judge had, had rendered in his decision. I mean, that's been a case that's going back to the 90s and, and twistedly, uh, my family knows that the, you know, uh, the chefs because we, we all went to the same church in Hartford together. So my brother and, and Milo were friends back then. So I got a personal interest, I guess, in this. And I'm curious to see what the result will that be. But I'm curious in terms of the timeline. I mean, how realistic are they going to be to bringing that up before the General Assembly? And then the final thing I will say, and, and John, I know, you know, I, I'm almost like a, you know, uh, I, I like a broken record on this. I'm always fixated on what the issues will be is it really economic development in our cities. I don't want to ignore the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of this money coming from Washington is going to be addressing a lot of our infrastructure problems. And I'd like to see how and when uh, the General Assembly will be taking up a lot of these causes is really economic development in a lot of our cities that's way overdue in addressing areas like Bridgeport and Hartford, among other cities, obviously. Well, we'll loop back to some of those things. Absolutely. Danny Har, how, how about you? What, what are the ways in which you're thinking about this year? Well, related to uh, what Jonathan and Susan said, especially what Jonathan just said about cities, this is a rare election year with money. And we have, a, a, as you discussed with Keith, we have a pretty big budget, very big budget surplus, both on the normal tax collection side, that's $1.5 billion, and on the rainy day fund side, that's $900 million projected surpluses. We won't go into why they're separate, but they're separate. And so that's a total of $2.4 billion, which gives the this, this state a lot of money to play with in an election year, which is a dangerous thing, which we'll get into. And the governor, of course, is warning against that. Don't spend too much now that you're not going to be able to respend because government is recurring. So that's one rarity. But I would also say that, especially, again, since it's an election year, it's going to be marked by a discussion of but a lack of action on a lot of things that, again, won't happen. And that is anything on environmental, on climate change, anything on zoning and, and the housing issues we discussed last year, not going to happen. Any tax increases to rebalance as the uh, left wants to see the income tax, not going to happen. And uh, any true reform of the health system, that's also not going to happen. There will be no such thing as then there isn't even a proposal for a, um, a, a, a state-directed uh, health plan. That's not happening. So we're really going to be not seeing things discussed that aren't going to be doing happening. <laughs> so a lot of stuff not happening. Uh, yes. the, the things that are happening, of course, is a, a whole series of elections. And that's the reason why uh, you know, we've got all this money to spend in, in an election year. That's going to be spent in some very interesting ways. We'll get into that. Maybe the way we can start this conversation, though, is because so much is going to be centered on the Capitol. It's going to be centered on what leverage uh, Ned Lamont has, what's been happening with uh, his ability to uh, have people mask in schools or not mask in schools, all of his uh, very specialized powers that he's been able to wield over the course of m much of these last couple of years. We, we're going to talk a lot, a lot about that, but there's a big Senate race as well. And, and maybe we can start with that, Dan, just because almost everything else in our conversation is going to be happening at the state level. But the Senate race in which uh, people are lining up to take on Dick Blumenthal, the long-serving Connecticut senator, it just got a little bit more interesting today. You've broken some some news with Hearst Newspapers uh, today in that front. Maybe you can talk about that race a little bit. And I'll start with you, Dan. Yes, my colleagues at the Greenwich Time, uh, at Greenwich Time, not the Greenwich Time, have broken the news just about an hour ago that Leora Levy, the Republican National Committee representative from Connecticut, one of two, 
uh, is in the race for U.S. Senate. And she's in the race despite the fact that Themis Claritas, who, who was, of course, in the governor's race, switched to the Senate race, making uh, former Representative Claritas, the former uh, House Republican leader, the front runner, the clear front runner. Uh, what Leora Levy brings is a national uh, uh, platform. Uh, she's been very big in fundraising for the Republican Party nationally. She will have no trouble raising the, let's say, three to, well, say $3 million or so that she's going to need uh, to run. Uh, uh, Richard Blumenthal has, uh, Senator Blumenthal has $6.9 million in the bank. Uh, and one of the debates in that Republican uh, side is, of course, Themis Claritas is the more moderate. Leora Levy is conservative enough that she went along last week with the vote that said that what happened on January 6th, uh, 2021 was, quote, legitimate political discourse. Themis Claritas said no. Bob Stefanowski running for governor said no. So we talked a little bit um, both with Mark and with, with Keith about this, but the the role of Themis Claritas in this is, is really interesting, but Having Levy in this race, Dan, does bring Donald Trump into this, and it brings Donald Trump into it in sort of an unusual way. Now, uh, Themis Claritas is going to have to answer more questions about Donald Trump. There's a really good chance that because we have more national Republican money flowing into this race, that Donald Trump might even be a presence here. Does that in any way skew things or change things in your mind, Dan, for Republicans? I'll ask you first, and then I'll ask the Republican on the panel, see what he says. (laughs) It's an admitted one. Yes, uh, yes, I think it does because it's a national race. Of course, at the governor level, Bob Stefanowski keeps telling us that it's not about national politics. And at the Senate, U.S. Senate level, of course it is. Themis Claritas was a delegate to the 2016 convention in Cleveland for Donald Trump. She also introduced Donald Trump in the 2016 rally in Bridgeport. So she's pretty tied to him, but she's the least Trumpy of the two. And there are other candidates, uh, uh, Peter Lumage, who's the, the lawyer from Fairfield, who has a great backstory as an Albanian refugee, but uh, he's so far out of touch with reality in terms of the political spectrum that he's not going to be a viable candidate, um, but a great, respectable story. Um, I think that Lior Levy, Lior Levy was the uh, ambassador to Chile designee for uh, the president, President Trump, and that never, she never got confirmed. That The nomination never came up because it was in the last year. But in any case, she's more closely tied to Trump because of that and because of her rhetoric and because of where she stands. And I do definitely believe that it's gonna give an advantage to uh, Themis Claritas because of course, if she's able to win the Republican primary, the hope is that you can beat Richard Blumenthal and it ain't gonna happen if you're tied to Trump in Connecticut. So Themis Claritas uh, became one of, if not the most prominent member of your party, Jonathan, over the course of the last several years in her leadership in the Republican Party. When she steps aside, we assume that she's going to run for governor. She says, I'm not going to run for governor. Now I'm going to run for Senate. Here's someone who, uh, in many ways, was lining herself up to take a run at governor, understands state policy and politics pretty well, not necessarily sure how well she's able going to be able to uh, compete with Dick Blumenthal on some of the issues that are facing the world right now uh, outside of Connecticut. That notwithstanding, now she is going to have to grapple with some of the big national political questions that she probably doesn't have anything to do with. As a Republican, how do you see this particular mix of candidates to take on Richard Blumenthal? Well, I mean, as Dan broke out in his, his article a while back or his op-ed a few weeks ago, I mean, the rumors were there 
that she was interested in running for the U.S. Senate over running for governor. I mean, that was a gossip really a month or so ago that there was a real possibility she was considering the U.S. Senate in the first place. Um, I mean, look, it's no secret, as Dan says, yes, I'm an admitted Republican, <laughs> fourth generation registered. And of course, that was on State Central. And some of the talk among um, people on State Central, because I still go to the dinners every once in a while, thankfully, was that this was a possibility. But we can't ignore the fact that you know, she has certainly been a powerhouse in Naugatuck Valley. And I think there's interest there. At the same time, I don't want to ignore Levy because she is quite, you know, the, you know, she's quite the fundraising horse. She's very successful doing this in Greenwich for the party, for the state party. And of course, as you all said, she's got inroads for the national party. But we can't ignore, she was not initially supportive of, of uh, Donald Trump from the beginning. I mean, people forget she was actually very much against it. And there was that fascinating you know, uh, New York magazine article about that, which I'm still mesmerized of how I was hoping she was against Donald Trump initially running in the race. And then eventually she did become interested. So I guess I'm going to be following uh, what's going to happen with Levy. But she already said, you know, Lyra had already said from the beginning, you know, she put up on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that she was interested in still running for the U.S. Senate. The gossip was, was that she's going to run against Jim Himes for the House seat. So there's some talk of that, but she posted and she put up on, on Facebook, she even put it up on email that she was still interested in running for the U.S. Senate. So until that kind of gets you know, decided, you know, at convention, let alone to the primary, that's one thing. The other thing I don't want to ignore is that don't ignore Peter Lamage. He can fundraise too. And I, I know, Dan, you're shaking your head and, you know, you have some of your concerns about where he stands on a lot of these causes, but he can fundraise money. Now, granted, some of it's been out of state, but he does have an interesting cohort of, of people who are lawyers, who are very good at what they do fundraising. And he's certainly been the backbone of a lot of RTCs, even in Connecticut. And then I don't want to ignore certainly Flynn and, well, yes, of course, Hyde as well, because there are going to be a lot of candidates who are going to try. How many to people are you going to not ignore? Right. Well, you can't because it's going to be a fight all, I think, for the convention, quite frankly. I mean, honestly, Dan, did you ever think that the U.S. Senate was going to be the big fight all? Or do you think it was going to be another gubernatorial, you know, <laughs> sideshow that was four years ago? <laughs> but 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 so I guess he, here's the question, Jonathan, is is. We have long been critical of the Republican Party in Connecticut trying to run candidates at the federal level, right? Whether it's somebody running for Senate or somebody running in any of the five congressional seats. Republicans have not put up very great candidates, let's just put it that way, over the course of the last couple of decades, with some exceptions. Right now, there is that overriding issue of deciding whether or not you are going to go along with Donald Trump and, you know, January 6th is, is political discourse or go in the other direction and say, no, January 6th is a bunch of crazy people kicking down doors and taking over the U.S. Capitol in an insurrection. And but, you know, the you're either on one side of that or you're on right. the other side of it. Well, the candidates are going to come out eventually and, and indicate if they're not already. And the other thing we can't ignore is that, look, Blumenthal is 76 years old. And so even if he were to win this, it's going to be a matter of who's going to be next after him. And more importantly, we can't ignore that, look, he was supportive of the Communist Party and how he came out at a couple of those, you know, uh, events, which was awkward for him. So I would not count out Blumenthal in thinking that he can get this immediately. I think that there's some dings against him, too. Supportive of the Communist Party? Well, it's some of those events where he admitted why he even attended those events in the first place, John. Um, I'm sorry, Su Susan, did you want to say something? Um, as far as I understand <laughs> that, that was, well, from what Blumenthal says, he had no idea that there was some sort of communist tie to some event that I believe it was the Working Families Party mm -hmm. uh, was at. And honestly, I'd be shocked if 
anybody besides um, a few people in the Republican Party who were never going to vote for Blumenthal anyway are going to are going to care about that. The the thing is that no matter who the Republicans nominate, it's going to be a nationalized race. It's going to be about national issues, and it's going to be really really hard. Even in a Republican year, it's going to be very hard for a Republican to get any traction, especially against a longtime incumbent who has always been very popular in Connecticut. We have to admit, he always is, Richard Blumenthal has always been popular. Uh, it's gonna be very hard for a Republican to get any kind of traction uh, and even to come close. I mean, when was the last time that a Republican actually put up a respectable fight in a Senate race and uh, was able to close to within a couple of points? It, it hasn't happened in a really, really long time. Do, do we see, go ahead, Danny. I think underlying the question here and the reason that you have two serious candidates, let's say two and a half, Jonathan, two and a half serious candidates in the race <clears> is because there is a belief that Richard Blumenthal is not as unbeatable as he has been in the past. Uh, and, and that can be debated, and we don't need to debate it tonight, but that's the underlying belief in serious Republicans getting into the race as opposed to what we've seen before. And it's not that it, 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 it's not that, that Linda McMahon wasn't a serious Republican. She did spend more her vote than any human in American history, but uh, I don't think anybody thought she had a chance of winning either of those two races. Came close to it though, closest among all the other candidates. For a hundred million dollars, yeah. Does does anybody see anything interesting before we move on from this in any of the five congressional races? It, it no. seems once again likely that we don't necessarily have any races that are are worth considering. I know Jonathan's going to say something different. I do, actually, as a matter of fact, because there's a potential candidate to go against Rosa DeLauro. As a matter of fact, I'm meeting with a candidate for lunch this week. So don't- Is it you? Is it you? (laughs) I'm in the district, but I would never go against Rosa. Uh, (laughs) But it is somebody who has got certainly family lineage to the Republican Party. And so don't count her out. There's a potential possibility for this to happen. So you'll probably hear about it within the next few weeks. The problem is for Republicans that the district lines didn't change enough, that the the districts, the way that they're drawn now um, and the way that the population is right now, again, makes it really hard for Republicans to win. If the fifth district had been drawn differently, and I know this is something that Republicans were looking at, then maybe you might have a shot there. Obviously, you have no shot in the third. Um, You have no shot in the first. Um, The fourth is increasingly unlikely. The second could be possibly a competitive at some point, but not when Joe Courtney is in there. Um, so again, I, I don't see it, the, the fact that the map stayed the same means that there's it's going to be stasis. There's not going to be any movement there. And, and Dan's holding up the five fingers. Danny, the, the fifth district George is always Logan, the one the that we former senator from, And I'm surprised, Jonathan, that you didn't bring this up. The former senator from Ansonia has the best chance of winning uh, over one of the five Democratic incumbents by far. Uh, certainly we haven't seen who's in the third, but they're not going to beat Rosa DeLauro. Uh, well, the thing you know, is that you're, you're bringing up an interesting point because the, the National Party has put some effort and interest in that. So you're right. right. And Johanna Hayes is, is the most beatable of the five candidates, and George Logan is the best of the candidates that the Republicans have. So you have so the far. best against the worst in so a race far. that... that Now, you have to say she's still the strong front runner as the incumbent in a Democratic uh, uh, state. But remember, the fifth went for... Bob Stefanowski in 2018, it went for, did it go for Trump? I don't know. Uh, no, it didn't It didn't go for Trump, but it went for Bob Stefanowski. Uh, of course it didn't go for Trump, but it's 
It's very winnable for the Republicans if they play their cards right. He has to start by moving into the district. That's a small. Well, I think you heard about that. So because <laughs> it came out this week that he is planning on that. So it was always in the cards, to be frank with you. I mean, he talked to me about that. So, I mean, that's not a surprise. It was going to happen eventually. Okay, so let, let, let's move on from there and talk about the governor's race, which is the thing that I think is going to, you know, following on from that will be really influencing everything else that we talk about tonight. Uh, Susan, we have Bob Stefanowski once again, now the feminist Claritus has gotten out of the race, seemingly being the, the presumed candidate for governor uh, on the Republican side. Ned Lamont has a lot going for him. He has the ability to write checks. Uh, and he certainly has a lot of leverage, given what we are going to be talking about later, all of this money to spend and sort of dole out in any way he, he sees fit, including in, in tax cuts for people. Right. Um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about his tax cuts later, but I always see tax cuts, especially especially during an election years, as a gimmick. I almost never see them as like a, a, like a serious kind of I, 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 don't, I don't take them seriously for the most part. I see them as a gimmick because there's the tax cuts are they're, they're almost like a cultural thing at this point. Um, tax cuts have like this this outsized importance in our minds um, and takes on this this outsized cultural importance for us, no matter which side of the, the divide that we're on. Much more so than they actually uh, in, impact us economically. Um, so when I hear the governor talking about tax cuts, I think well, obviously it's an election year. Um, it's not going to do much except defuse a little bit uh, some of the arguments Republicans may have against him about taxes. Um, but I, again, I think that what we're seeing from the governor now is he's trying to defuse some of these possible Republican talking points. I do see this as going to be another close race that Bob Stefanowski will lose um, because I don't think that the conditions have changed that much um, and that he, Lamont's performance during the pandemic is going to be enough to and allow people to take another, another another chance on him, I think. But that's that's where I think where we're at. I don't think it's going to be significantly different. Danny? I wouldn't predict the race. He came within 44,000 votes of winning last time uh, when he ran out of money in October and was, frankly, a real jerk on the trail. And I, had, I, I sat down with him and had a beer afterward. And he's a funny guy and making jokes. I said, where, where was this? And I think he was kind of reined in. He's got, you know, Bob Stefanowski 2.0. He's still very, very conservative. He's still running against an incumbent who I think did a fantastic job in the pandemic, despite what you see on the Twitter sphere. So I wouldn't predict what's going to happen. But uh, the issue is, as you said, Susan, about the Senate race, I think even the governor's race is going to be significantly hinging on national issues. Inflation is going to hurt Democrats at every level. Inflation will hurt the Democrats. What, what does the governor of Connecticut have anything to do with, with inflation, Dan? It doesn't what does matter. What does the president have to do? You, what does it doesn't matter. Joe Biden have to do with inflation? Nothing. The inflation came from the pandemic collapse, followed by the buildup and the supply chain crisis. Not anything Joe Biden did that's the way it is. So, so uh, Jonathan, Dan sees it as, as potentially close once again. Maybe it's too close to call. Bob Stefanowski uh, came within spinning distance of, of Ned Lamont last time. But as Mark Pazniokas, you know, likes to tell us, Connecticut voters tend to stick with people. Matter of fact, we haven't voted out a sitting governor in a very, 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 very long time. So 1954. 
1954. So what, what kind of odds do we put this at? Well, the thing is that I don't want to ignore, Dan, I can't believe I'm going to say this, my former home state where I lived for a while, New Jersey. We saw what happened there with Phil Murphy, right? Because he narrowly won that re-election, which was a bizarre twist because it had been a long time since the Democratic you know, governor had gotten re-elected. So you know, don't count out the possibility of a Republican candidate winning. I think the one thing we had to ignore, Os Griebel did cut into that slice there when he ran as an independent. And I'm very curious as to who are going to be these independent or unaffiliated candidates. I don't ignore that because there's going to be a lot of angst coming from unaffiliated voters. I mean, let's face it, Connecticut is the majority of unaffiliated voters. I know we love to think we're such a blue state, rah, rah, rah. We're not. The majority of nutmeggers are unaffiliated. We actually hate political parties, myself included, by the way, Dan. Sorry to tell you, break you the news there. But the, the truth is, is that we have this angst and concern about where the direction of the leadership has been in Connecticut politics. I'm not just saying I'm the governor. I'm just saying in general with both local parties. And so whoever that candidate could be or candidates on the unaffiliated side could slice into both sides of the pie, which is exactly what happened four years ago, interestingly enough. Are there Ernestine more- Holloway. What? <laughs> Good throwback, right? And and obviously a Republican candidate, right? I mean, Ernestine Holloway is the is is the independent declared independent today declared today as the independent party of Connecticut candidate, and they have a line on the ballot. So you to your point, your which point. is interesting, right? Because look, it's no secret she's been very close with Bob Stefanowski. I mean, she's certainly been in enough events in the past. So that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, she's almost kind of you know. Um, you know, almost like, uh, oh my goodness, why am I forgetting this? Uh, <laughs> who's, who's the former mayor of, I mean, the former mayor, the Shelton mayor, help me out. Loretti. Loretti. He's almost, she's almost like Loretti, right? Close enough with Stefanowski, and then it's going to also create some division internally. Isn't that interesting when you think about that? <laughs> do, do you think, do you think, Jonathan, that uh, Themis Claire is getting out of the race, Bob Stefanowski, obviously running for the last four years and continuing to run now, that there is actually a chance for Republicans to get behind a candidate in the way that maybe they haven't before, not have any sort of battle in August, not have any sort of fight at conventions. It's just, you know, getting behind Bob. Well, you know, that's been my research from the beginning, hasn't it? You know that, John. I've written way too much on that in a couple of academic articles in terms of when you have a splintering base, which was the case in 2018. And we can't ignore that he was a petitioning candidate. And of course, he received only 27% of support at the primary. So there's got to be a way of really kind of closing in and closing ranks. That's got to be key at the Republican base. He knows that. I mean, Bob and I have spoken about that plenty of times, and that's going to be a a key factor. But I don't want to ignore those unaffiliated voters. That's got to be critical, too. So Susan says, and I think a lot of people would agree, that tax cuts are just for show. It's not real, solid policy. Do you think the tax cuts, Dan, cut into uh, any Republican opposition to, to Ned Lamont or any unaffiliateds who are trying to stray somewhere else or maybe not even vote? And once he's able to put a couple dollars back in your wallet, that's going to make everyone feel better? Well, it's a gimmick on both sides. The tax cuts, to Susan's point, are a gimmick uh, during an election year, notwithstanding the fact that we do have a very large surplus. So we don't want to spend money that we can't spend in future years. So you might as well do a tax cut. Uh, But also calls for big tax reform are a gimmick by Republicans and some Democrats in an election year. So they cancel each other out. And yes, it does blunt some of that criticism. Besides, the tax cut that the governor has proposed and some of the other proposals are pretty good, smart tax cuts. They're not rebates like the governor uh, Roland did in 1998. 
And I know some people like to see that too. They're good policy tax cuts. So it depends on the tax cut. In this case, it's going to be an effective debate. Uh, Susan, could we could we talk for a second about the actual tax cut plan that uh, the governor has put forward? I mean, he he is talking about trying to make it a little bit easier for people at the at the town level because you know he wants to take on some of the property taxes that are so destructive to people that people complain about more than anything else. What do you see in his tax cut plan? Well, it is interesting that he's trying to take on property tax reform. That has been something that people have been trying to do for a while. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do because towns want to know where are we going to get the money from and where are we going to get the money from going forward? Like how are our municipalities going to get reimbursed for that? And well, we may have, I, I think I like the idea that has been floated about maybe some, maybe if they want to do this to have, have it be like one or two years only um, sort of brief tax, tax reform, but it, it can't be anything permanent unless you have a way for towns to get money in some other way. Um, he is also, uh, let's say, I, I believe he was, um, I'm trying to, I'm blanking on it right now. Uh, there's the child tax credit he was looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, again, some some things that are t- supposedly will make the life a little bit easier for, for lower income folks. They're not going nearly as far as, as progressives want him to go. Um, progressives want him to really try to address income inequality uh, whereas he's just looking at sort of small fixes that might make some things a little easier for some people. Um, so, you know, it seems like some of these might be a good idea. I would like to see some sort of general tax reform when it comes to um, when it comes to property taxes. The car tax especially is something that's that's really, really difficult, and really tough for people. Um, but unless there's some way to actually reimburse towns and make municipal leaders feel like they're not going to get completely robbed. I don't see it going anywhere. Mm, Interesting, Danny. I don't see what Lamont has proposed as what you would call property tax reform. It's property tax shift. Uh, What he's talking about is taking a very small $200 tax credit that's available now to people who have uh, dependent children at home or dependents at home and to people over 65. Uh, and expanding that to $300 for virtually the entire state up to 130,000 or 109,000 for single people uh, uh, filing singly. So it's a very broad expansion and and an increase to $300. That's helpful to people and it's a very good way to get a lot of money into a lot of hands and not get money into hands that don't need it. Property tax reform implies something much broader and deeper. and as for the, the as for the income tax, and that's what what Susan's talking about, that what the left wants to see, and I see in some of our comments, people are saying Ned is Ned Lamont is not catering to his base. What they mean is he needs to rob from the rich and give to the poor, and he refuses to do that. And he's going to continue to refuse to do that. Hopefully, for him, back to a second term. Yeah, it, it's it's sort of hard for Republicans to outflank uh, Governor uh, Jonathan that is able to dole out money out of a surplus, is able to propose tax cuts, and is able to continually beat back any suggestions from the left that he would raise taxes on the richest Connecticut residents. I I don't know how Republicans kind of maneuver around a person in that particular position of strength, especially given the incumbency and the fact that Connecticut steady habits always suggest that the incumbent's going to win. Well, I mean, there's a tendency to think that way, but I, I am always one who's a believer that any politician is vulnerable. 
you know, any elected official, especially when they're facing re-election, is, is not a, you know, a sure bet that they're going to be re-elected. That's why I said Philip Murphy is a great example how close he came to getting re-elected. It was amazing. You know why? The Democrats didn't show up. And you know there's a lot of angst even within the Democrats. You know, you know that that exists even within Connecticut. And so you can't just assume that all, all these Democrats, who many of them, by the way, are younger, they're more progressive, and they're more liberal than older voters. And so they have had a lot of concerns about Ned Lamont. So you can't just assume that they're all going to suddenly show up or, or reappear. And I don't want to forget those unaffiliated voters, which is the base of Connecticut voters. Got to have a reason for them to show up. Okay. Dan, did you want to say something? Yeah, Bob, and to, to, to continue that thought, Bob Stefanowski is doing an awful lot to bring out the base through crime, and they're going to start to talk more and more about these scandals. If you look at every single one of these things, the, the issue with uh, the chief state's attorney, Richard Colangelo, the issue with uh, Damasa, the, the, the uh, uh, accused uh, of stealing $600,000 in uh, pandemic relief money in West Haven, on and on, there are three or four of these things SEMA 4, the contract that they got, that his wife, all these things, the governor acted correctly in each and every one. And it is defensible what he did. He did the right thing in every case. Regardless, he's going to be accused of this plethora. There's this fog of a haze of scandal that the, the Republicans are trying to put forth. They're doing that to get out their base and they're succeeding. And I agree that the Democratic base isn't coming out. But what is their option? In the unions, the, the biggest base of the base is the state employee unions, right? He's not treating the unions with exactly kid gloves. He's going to be in a tough fight over these contracts coming up this spring. But they have no choice. They have to vote for him. The the one thing that has been is so interesting about these last couple of years, different than any other time that we've any of us have covered or, or taken a look at, is the way that this governor has been able to handle this pandemic. Danny had suggested earlier, Susan, that Ned Lamont has done a fairly admirable job of this. But people are, of course, all over the place. And one of the, the ways in which uh, he's drawn a lot of fire is just the use of these executive orders to lay down the law in terms of how Connecticut is going to uh, deal with vaccines, how Connecticut's going to deal with masks, how it's going to deal with businesses. And I guess I'm wondering if you feel like the way in which Ned Lamont has used those executive orders and those executive powers, he's overplayed his hand somehow as we get into a year in which people have to say, okay, Ned, the job of governor is to work with the legislature. It's to listen to what people have to say. It's not just to pass executive orders all the time. Right. And certainly Republicans love to talk about King Ned. Uh, I certainly see that all, all the time. King Ned has done this. He's, you know, whatever. But, um, I, I see, I, I think I see him trying to back away from that a little bit. Uh, and we should talk about, um, we should talk about the mask mandate uh, for schools being passed off to localities, which again, a smart, I think, election year, yes, a smart play on the governor's part because it deflects all that criticism. Uh, it's politically smart for him, but it's, uh, it's not great for the poor people in, on boards of education in towns who are gonna have suddenly be all the target of this, really all this anger about mask mandates from both sides. Concern from parents who are worried about their kids getting, um, getting COVID, concern from uh, other folks about um, masks uh, causing all kinds of other problems. Uh, but I see him trying to back away from this, uh, this sort of um, delivering executive orders kind of being the capital of the pandemic uh, as things start to recede a little bit. Um, 
I do think though that the general public found the executive orders, if they paid attention to them at all, I found them somewhat reassuring. I do think that the general public didn't have a huge problem with that. And as, as all of that kind of recedes away before November happens, and I think we'll see him step back from that even more uh, over the next couple of months, um, I think that it's going to become that a non-issue unless there's some sort of scandal that can be drummed up there, some sort of way that people can point to a misuse of power uh, during that time. Uh, but that's, I think, the only thing that could possibly come up during the during the actual election. I, I want to circle back to the school mask mandates in just a second. Mm-hmm. But but Danny, this larger issue of of executive orders, I know that you, you were saying uh, your host Hearst colleagues have some more news on that because it's it's not just the executive order of do kids need to wear masks in schools, but there's a whole plethora of other executive orders that that have been extended when the House votes. Uh, on Thursday and the Senate on Monday, they've made a strategic decision, uh, which was not unexpected, to go in one big lump with 11 orders. And the 11 orders deal with things like, for example, it continues forward with the vaccine mandate uh, for um, nursing home employees, for state hospital employees, for visitors to nursing homes. It continues forward with the masking as we've seen, uh, not necessarily the mask mandate, but the mask authority. Um, it does some purchasing order stuff that the governor can suspend certain purchasing rules. So there are broad things, most of which are agreed upon. The mask rule would not pass in the House. The House is unlikely to have the votes for the mask rule if it were done singly. So they're taking a risk by putting it in all 11, and they're sweetening it because what they're going to do, we are reporting uh, this hour at Hearst. Connecticut media, uh, my colleague Julia Bergman, they are going to add uh, a five-day waiver for the schools. They're going to try and add a five-day waiver. It may not be five. They're going to debate what number of days. So that schools that lost certain number of days, especially in the peak of Omicron at the start of January, the middle of January, won't have to go into late June or even July to make up those days. That's a nice sweetener for the towns, and it's going to help them get some votes. It's a nice sweetener for the towns, but but Jonathan, as as we were saying before, if part of the tax plan is to do reformed property taxes, and towns are already lining up and saying, "Hold it, how are we going to get this? How are we going to get this money that we were that we were going to get before? Um, where is that going to come from?" Now, the latest thing that comes down from the governor is, you know, you all have to decide at the town level whatever you want to do with school mass mandates. Have fun with those meetings. I guess I just it feels like kind of a bad time to be running a town right now well actually i've been mesmerized by it i think it's no secret you all know much i love to study local yoko politics um and and for me the state is great and nice but i always like to see the intrigues of home rule or local authority and yet the governor is aligned for that to happen right now and so i think it'll be interesting to see which towns are going to be the ones that will decide to rescind it or to keep it and what the reasons might be and so uh, i'm going to be paying special attention to that uh, I also want to don't want to ignore, I think the timing is so ripe in light of this, that we're going back to New Jersey and even Delaware, right? Because this all came out on the same day with the other states. So they were pretty much all in sync. And I'm kind of interested in seeing where New York will land on all this. So I, I'm just, I don't know. I, I don't know, John. I'm fascinated by by how the states have been almost in, in, in lockstep about this in terms of letting, you know, this be rescinded within a matter of weeks 
and letting you know localities decide this or even school districts. I, I, I don't know. Look, this is all uncharted territory. When you think about this with, with, with this. And I'm just like, I mean, for a guy who studies state and local government, I mean, here I am teaching this stuff in class and I got the textbook, I'm going through it. And I'm like, there's no real. Uh, it, it's in, it's intriguing, here. Jonathan. It's intriguing. But I just I, I guess I can just see a series of really ugly meetings in which people yell at each other and accuse each other of things that neighbors shouldn't be accusing each other of. And that's not Ned Lamont's fault, by the way. This was all going to happen at some point anyway. And in pushing it down to the towns, you know, in many ways clearly makes a lot of sense, but it just feels as though we're going to see some, some ugly. It may be interesting to watch from a political science standpoint, but I don't know that I'd want to be in the middle of one of those things. Well, it's called I mean, democracy, is- John. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, is, is, yeah, go ahead, is Susan. It? I mean, this, this, this is. is already happening. Literally. I mean, right. there was an incident. Uh, there was an incident in Enfield not not too long ago. Um, yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, this is yeah. There's there's been incidents in a bunch of towns, uh, and it's it's just going to escalate. And there's democracy, and then there's a a small committed very loud group of people shutting things down and making threats. That's a whole other story. So I do feel like it's, I think you're right. I don't think it's a very good time to be running a town right now because you're going to be in the middle of all of this cultural awfulness that's going to come your way. You want to see a a real fight? If the legislature does not advance the executive orders and, and give the town statutory authority to have a mask mandate in schools, there is a legal opinion floating around that they can do it anyway, based on something called chapter 170, 10, section 10, 220, that says that school boards have the right and the, and the responsibility to quit, create a safe environment. And therefore they have the right to do mask mandates. Imagine if that happens, then you're oh really gonna see some fights oh God. because we won't even have a clear authority in the case of the boards. That's going to be wild. I, I suppose we could we could talk about that for the whole rest of our time, but I, I do want to get onto a couple other issues. And and you raised this earlier, Susan. Maybe we can talk about this just a, a bit more. The the question of reality versus fiction in in terms of crime in Connecticut. Right. There there have been a lot of statistics going around over the course of the last few years about what violent crime actually looks like in the state. What it looks like all across the country. There have been uh, some very serious reactions uh, amongst many people to what they saw as a wave of carjackings last year, what they saw as a wave of of very violent crimes. How do you see the issue of crime actually playing out in this legislative session and politically this year? I could see, um, I suspect what we'll see is a couple of proposals here and there from the legislature, uh, from the governor and and the legislature, uh, to do a couple of sort of minor things about crime. Maybe uh, maybe addressing juvenile um, juvenile crime in some way. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe putting a couple more cops on the street. Something, but something small that's not going to make a ton of a ton of difference. But the problem is with crime and how people uh, react to crime is they don't react to uh, statistics. They don't react to the numbers. They react to how they feel about crime. Do they feel safe? Um, and when you have the Republicans right now are trying to talk up crime quite a lot, and that makes people feel less safe. If people see on the news that there's been what seems like a lot of carjackings lately, or if they hear it from their neighbors, they feel less safe. 
Does that mean that carjackings are up from like, say a couple of years ago? No, uh, that's certainly not the case. Does that mean that violent crime has increased? No, uh, violent crime has been decreasing for years. Does that mean that, uh, that we are in a much worse place when it comes to crime than we have been previously? Probably not. But again, the statistics may not matter nearly as much as how people feel. So I could see uh, the legislature trying to take some kind of action as they're being pressed by their constituents to do so. But again, I, I, because it's such a short session, I, I just don't see them doing very much about it. But I could see them trying to take a stab at something symbolic. Is this going to be a Republican talking point for the legislature this year, Jonathan? Absolutely. And it's been an ongoing thing, even here on the shoreline. I mean, you know, I, I live down this way and my neighbors have been talking about this for well over a year. And I have friends of mine in Madison whose neighbors' cars have been stolen out of their driveway. And it's all caught on camera. I mean, these video clips are amazing that I've witnessed really since the springtime. Um, and it's been a big wake up call in a lot of communities where, quite frankly, I mean, it's pretty quiet down here in Brantford and Guilford and Madison. But then suddenly in the last year, you see not even so much an uptick, but just a lot of talk as Susan's bringing up among neighbors. And so it might be terribly provincial. Maybe it's just in, in some areas more so than others, but it's already a lot of talk about this. And, and quite frankly, it's interesting because it's actually going on right in Stefanowski's backyard. I mean, I don't want to ignore he was right in the same community in Madison where a lot of this is going on. And, and Themis is not far away from there. I think you all know she lives in Madison too. So uh, I, I'm kind of intrigued that this is going on. Like it's been an ongoing thing for a while. And I thought it was going to be a bigger issue, quite frankly, for- But, 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 to, the, but to Susan's point, I mean, and you were, you were just saying this though, it, it, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of talk, but there's not necessarily an uptick. So, so what do we make of an issue in which a whole lot of people saw some videos of cars getting stolen and now crime is going to become one of the most important issues in the 2022 race? I think it's what she said earlier. I mean, look, people will know just through anecdotal evidence. And so they can speak mm. towards in terms of experiences and what their neighbors have gone through. And I have to say, in Leisure Line Towns, trust me, John, a lot of people know each other and there's a lot of talk about this. And, and it's not like it just came up in the last couple of months. This has been going on for well over a year and a half, I mean, really since the pandemic kind of started. But my question is, is, is are people talking about this because it's happening or are they talking about this because everyone's seen the same video or everybody, or people are being sort of whipped up by, uh, by people who have an agenda. This is being pushed either by the media sometimes, which likes to sensationalize this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, or by um, by politicians who are wanting to make a wanting to make points about crime, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think a little bit about there's a lot behind this. It's not just that's not sure. just not necessarily reality. It's how people perceive reality, which is really. Different. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, this has been going on for a while. I mean, this is really nothing new. I think that, yes, the politicians yeah. can be seizing on it. That's not surprising, right? But this has been going on really during the pandemic, and it's been a concern. L let me say that. So it's really nothing new per se. And so if politicians are going to kind of galvanize on that. that. That shouldn't be so shocking. But it's an area of which they're they're going to use and, and to get score some points. Yes, of course, because especially during election year. Danny? It's the most emotional debate there is. It's not something, as Susan said, it's not something people are going to use data to debate the most emotional debate in the session of last year, 2021, was the proposal that, which passed and became law to expunge certain felony records after seven or 10 years, misdemeanors and felonies after seven or 10 years. Every legislator that spoke got up and gave on both sides an anecdote about why this was a, a, a reclaim someone's life on the left and victimization on the right. And this is the way crime goes. 
What we know is that long-term violent crime was, has been on a decline uh, in, in, heading into the pandemic. We saw an increase in murder. We saw an increase in car theft. We don't know whether these, no one knows whether these are lasting trends or not, but the anecdotes are out there. And the Republicans want to get tough with juveniles. And Lamont, that's precisely why on Thursday, or what's today? On Monday, he came out, he came out with his plan to tighten up gun control and put more cops on the street. And that's the debate. And it's going to be a great one, but it won't yield any new laws this year. I, I want to get to a, a question that somebody had in here. Kathleen wrote, and it harkens back to our earlier conversation, but it really gets to all of this stuff when you think about it. I mean, all these people who are going to be running for state Senate, maybe served on a local board of education uh, beforehand. And her, her question is, how can it be called democracy when excellent candidates, especially for boards of education, decide not to run based on safety concerns for their family? Jonathan, I'll start with you on this. It's, it's, this isn't democracy when you get people yelling at each other and up in, up in people's face. I mean, look, I've covered politics for a very long time, and I've seen waves of this where people are uncivil to each other, but never anything like this. Never the way we've seen it around everything from, you know, whether or not you're going to have a Native American mascot to whether or not you're going to have masks in schools. People are getting up in each other's face and yelling. And I know people who aren't getting into politics at the state or, or local level anymore because they don't want to put up with this crap. I mean, doesn't that damage us substantially? Of course. Politics is never pleasant. And I'm oftentimes emphasizing that to my students, especially at the state and local level. And what we're seeing right now is that politics can be terribly personal as playing out right now. Now, whether that's the effects of what's going on nationally, I won't doubt that. But the fact that more people are engaged than they have been in the past is quite interesting. The more people and the more personalities that enter into the fray, the, the dirtier and messier it gets. And it's kind of the problem of direct democracy, quite frankly. When you get individuals who are directly engaged in this process, you get more agents, more people involved. It gets uglier and uglier and uglier. I mean, I would love to think that there's a pathway of negotiation. I mean, you know me, John, I am terribly a political romantic in that sense. But in truth, politics, especially even at the local level and has effects upon children, as you're indicating with the school board races, even at the local set, it can get nasty and dirty and mean. I don't wanna be Hobbesian because God knows I don't wanna think negatively that way, but it can be that way, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and I don't know, Susan, how do we turn this around? It, it, it really does feel as though the, the town politics that you love to cover uh, really are harmed by this sort of activity, this sort of vitriol that we see at the local level. Yeah, I mean, we used to say that all politics is local, but to me, it feels now that like all politics is national, that everything is about this massive culture clash uh, between not just right and left, red and blue, uh, but different ways of seeing the world, different peoples, different cultures. Um, it feels like unless these sides can come to some sort of understanding that the other side is human. And if we stop getting people pushing the opposite view that the other side is evil because of whatever, um, we can't, we can't move forward unless we all recognize that we're in this together and we have to come to some kind of compromise. Um, that feels remote at this point, unfortunately. Are, are you hopeful on this front, Dan? Uh, in the short term, no. I think we're seeing the lingering effects of Donald Trump and Trumpism where it gets to a sticky long term is because it's, it's the, also the result of social media. 
you know, it's it, obviously we don't have to get into that. We know about the insidious effects of social media. But I think Donald Trump is personally to blame for a lot of this. And that'll fade over time, we hope. Uh, we have a quick question from Christopher. It says, what state Senate districts do you think the GOP can realistically retake? You were talking about uh, the legislature before. Jonathan, do you have any like hot tips for us, places that we should watch? I gotta be honest, I need to follow more of those races. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit more intrigued what's gonna happen with Paul Pomerica since he's announced he's not gonna run again. Um, so we have some shoreline districts to, to which I'm gonna be following more of. So I'm a little bit behind in that department, John. And, and so I, I wish I could tell you and offer you some suggestions, but right now I, I don't know off the top of my head. Susan, do you have any, any towns that you're watching or any state legislative races that you're watching at all? Right now I'm interested uh, in what's gonna happen down in Lower Thurford County. Um, I think that that is an area where, which is going to go back and forth. I, I really need to dig in and look at the, look at the new state Senate map because the districts are, are very different down uh, in Greenwich, New Canaan, Stamford. The districts have, have become very, very different things and they're going to function differently. Uh, so I'm very interested to see what happens there. We can't forget that there are also some open seats that are opening up, uh, seats in the Farmington Valley, for example, um, I feel like that's going to be pretty interesting as well. Uh, that's that's kind of what I'm watching right now, uh, because I do think that Lower Fairfield County has been trending so Democratic lately, but there's also this very deep undercurrent of Republicans there, uh, sort of a long-standing history that does pop up. So that is very interesting. Those are going to all going to be very interesting races there. Senator Haskell uh, is not running for re-election. Yep. The Democrat, very young uh, Democrat who beat a longtime uh, Republican incumbent. It's no coincidence that that seat in Westport and Weston was gerrymandered by the Democrats to make it easier for a future Democrat to win. That's a race to watch. All right. I, but before I let you go, you know, when I was doing the wheelhouse, we, I was would ask people at the very end, just something to, to leave us with, something, something fun, something interesting maybe something scary that you're, that, that you're watching. And I'll start with you, Danny. I mean, what's something you want to leave us with? One big last or fun last Dan Har thought that you're going to give, up, give our audience today? Aside from the fact that Jonathan is, is shaming me into admitting that I grew up in New Jersey, uh, I, would say, I, I would say that we are at a great apogee of sports right now. Uh, these were great NFL playoffs. We're looking at some great uh, basketball playoffs coming up. The Olympics last night was just an, a truly inspiring moment when that woman, Goo, won the, what do you call the super jump thing? Uh, it, it's just a, a time, and I think I, the way I view it is it's really like human character against human character. And I, I see this as a great time for that uh, if you happen to be a sports fan. So that's where I am. I, I love that. I love that. That's very good, especially the super jump thing. You get, you need to have the, the hand signals. Uh, Jonathan, how about you? What's the last thought for us? Well, I, I can't stop watching. Speaking of New Jersey, I can't stop watching Ozark. You know, the, I think you guys know that the seasons came out now again, thank God, during the pandemic. And Danny, you know, which I like my corruption politics since I say way too much of it in your home state. So watching Ozark again and seeing the season again, I can't stop watching it. I mean, Grant is only seven episodes right now, but I'm halfway through it. And I just can't get enough of corruption <laughs> in Missouri. I mean, just when you think it's bad and corrupt a kid or a dirty Jersey, there's always Missouri. So, uh, hey, I feel better. At least I've lived in states where it's not nearly as corrupt as Missouri. <laughs> big air. It's big air. My friend Kelly told right. me it's big air. <laughs> <laughs> that show's amazing. <laughs> uh, Susan, how about you? What's the last thought for us? 
Well, I am not from New Jersey. I just like to make that clear. Um, I think that's a very important point to make. Uh, I've actually been watching, um, and this brings out my inner dork. I've been watching a lot of Star Trek lately uh, because I want to feel hopeful about the future. And I want to feel like we're going in a good direction and that humans can be good to one another. There's a lot of good Star Trek on right now. There's new stuff. There's Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Lower Decks, Star Trek Prodigy, all these new series. And they're, they're great in their own, own different ways. So I watch that and I feel hopeful. And I, I do believe that someday that'll win out. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good way to end. Unfortunately, I do have to say, I, I have a New Jersey tie into all this. You know what I started re-watching? Like the opposite of Star Trek. I started re-watching The Sopranos from the beginning. Oh. It's yes, it's the God. most it's the most New Jersey show ever, and and oh, I thought that I wasn't going to love it uh, again the second time around. All these years later, boy, it's really still great. It's unbelievable. So anyway, thank you to all all of our guests, to Susan Bigelow, to Jonathan Warren, to Danny Har. Thank you to everyone who joined us tonight. Thank you so much to Bruce Putterman, who's the publisher of the Connecticut Mirror. He was also our our tech person, our grip tonight. So thank you for all of that. If you want to continue any of these conversations, just go to ctmirror.org. When you click on that big old button in the upper right-hand corner, donate, you're really helping to support local journalism. And you know what? You should probably subscribe to the Hearst newspapers too, and the Hartford Current, all those other newspapers as well, because it's really important that journalism continue. People like us can talk about what's going on in the news and cover it and have conversations, but it's the reporters who are on the beat every single day trying to find out what's happening at the state capitol in town council meetings. That's where you get your news, and that's why you need to support the Mirror and all the other news sources that you have, including ctnewsjunkie.com, one of the really great sites uh, in Connecticut. Thanks to everyone who joined us. We'll be back with more of these conversations in the coming months. Please have a good night, and yeah, live long and prosper.